We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Scott Talk Radio, the world from people who think. Hello and welcome to another uh, show of Soft Talk Radio. This is Neil Bradley. With me is Radio Joe Quinn, Pierre Lescaudon, and Laura is joining us tonight. Pierre Lescaudon, and Laura is joining us tonight. We also have a very special guest on our show this week. Laura is joining us We also have a very special guest by the name of Stefan Ver. Hi, Stefan. Okay. Are we yeah, back? A, yes, we yeah. are. We had some. We had some. Okay. Well, let me just continue here. I was introducing our guest this week, Stefan Verstappen. He is a Canadian writer, adventurer, and martial artist. Stefan has worked as a youth street counselor in Toronto, and later as a wilderness survival instructor for the Outward Bound program of the Toronto Boys Home. As an instructor for St. John's Ambulance. In Toronto, Stefan has helped plan and run natural disaster drills and trained police and rescue workers in first aid and CPR. He has traveled extensively and spent four years in Hong Kong and Taiwan studying Chinese martial arts. He's a regular contributor to Black Belt magazine and the author of several books, including The Art of Urban Survival, A Family Safety and Self-Defense Manual. The 36 Strategies of Ancient China, Blind Zen, Martial Arts for the Blind and Visually Impaired, and I like this one, Little Warriors, a Home and Street Safety Booklet for Kids. Welcome, Stefan. Uh, Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate this. It's a big honor to speak with you all today. Uh, Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate this. Thank you for agreeing to be on the show. Perhaps I should explain how we heard of you, your YouTube video. Defense Against the Psychopath, which is based on an excerpt from the first book I mentioned, The Art of Urban Survival. Now, we've been researching and writing about psychopaths and uh, psychopathy and their effects on society for years, especially Laura and Joe here. So your main interest seems to be in sort of East Asian culture, history, martial arts. How did you find yourself researching this topic? Well, I guess it was a divergence of two separate interests. One interest, and the reason I included in this book, The Art of Urban Survival, stemmed from my martial arts teaching experience. Um, I've taught a lot of self-defense courses, and what people, what the students expect when they come to a self-defense course is for me to show them 
you know, how to escape uh, from a hold, uh, what to do if they're attacked. Uh, people want to learn kicks and punches and, and, and so forth and how to disable an attacker. And that's fine. But for me, having an, a background in, for example, the strategy, the, the book, The 36 Strategies of Ancient China, um, I learned a lot about strategy. And uh, I always thought that if you found yourself in a situation where you are in a physical fist fight with an attacker, you've already done three things wrong from a strategic point of view. Mm-hmm. First of all, you didn't spot the trouble ahead of time. Second, you didn't evade the trouble. And third, you didn't manage to escape. To find yourself in a hand-to-hand combat situation, which is a horrible experience, especially for anyone that's not used to physical violence, the shock value of being attacked is so overwhelming, people tend to blank out. So even if I were to teach you how to punch or kick and things like that, chances are if you're attacked by a professional criminal, you are not going to be able to respond using those techniques that I taught you. That has to become second nature, and you can only learn that through years and years of study. You can't learn it on a weekend self-defense course. So what could I teach them that really would be effective? What is the, 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 you know, the premier strategy to avoid becoming a victim? And the premier strategy is to spot trouble and to avoid it. And in order to do, to do that, you have to be street smart. And that was something I could never teach in a class. I can't take a, a group of students that sign up for a self-defense course and sit them down behind a desk and say, this is what it is like to be street smart. This is what you have to look out for. These are the, the signs, the symptoms, the little clues of an impending attack. These are the, the situational awareness that you would need in order to be able to sense and smell trouble way ahead of time and to leave so that you never, ever have to find yourself in a situation of kicking or punching somebody. Mm-hmm. But I could, never, I could never teach that in a, in a physical self-defense class. So I began writing the book as a way of trying to give my students something to take home with them after the self-defense course. I wanted them to get some ideas about crime prevention and, and evasion tactics, escape and evade, and, 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 and uh, situational awareness. So I started off by handing students you know, a page of, of my writings at the end of every class, and then you know, I continued to add more and more to it until I had a small booklet. And finally, I decided to expand that booklet into a, a, a full you know, fledged book on all the possible types of crimes and situations you could get into in an urban environment. Everything from carjacking to being kidnapped by a taxi driver and all the way through to what would happen if there was a national disaster or if you're suddenly under martial law or if you live in a society that is corrupt or engaging in warfare, what would be the techniques, what would the situational awareness tell you to do under those types of circumstances? Stefan, can I just interrupt you for a second? We seem to be getting a a little bit of feedback. Do you have speakers on or... No, I don't. You just got a headset uh, and, and, and microphone? Yeah, I got headphones and, uh, yeah, earphones and uh, microphone. Okay. Yeah, I hear it too. I hear it too. Hmm. I, I guess um, in order to not be a victim anymore, not be a prey anymore, one of the knowledge you have to acquire is knowledge of uh, predators, psychopaths. And it might be the way you connected the self-defense, martial art, uh, uh, street smart um, behavior with a psychopathy topic. 
Exactly. So, for example, you know, I, I make the analogy if, if rabbits were to learn a self-defense course, wouldn't they first, the first line of study be foxes and the behavior of foxes? Exactly. The same thing with humans. If you want to learn self-defense against crime and predation, well, who are the greatest predators of human beings? Well, it's other human beings, but actually not really other humans. It's psychopaths, and they look human, and they act human, but they're almost a different species. But they are our predators. So in a similar sense that you know the FBI profiles uh, serial killers, everybody themselves would, should be able to profile potential predators. And in order to do that, you have to know about psychopaths. So that's why the very first chapter in the book on self-defense is the study of psychopaths. Yeah, and unlike most most authors who write about psychopathy, uh, you you seem to suggest that psychopathy is not an acquired trait. You write somewhere in your book, the malevolent psychopath can show sign of their illness as early as age three. So it seems to be rather for some kind of psychopath a, a genetic condition that you cannot change, you cannot cure. Um, yeah, uh, what I did in the book is, first of all, I did a lot of research on psychopaths, not only for the self-defense point of view, but also the second, uh, what I said earlier, it was from divergent studies. My second study has been from history, and I'm also, what can you say, a, a seeker of the truth, if you want to call it that. I've studied um, most of the religious texts that are in existence today. I've followed numerous philosophies and, and have immersed myself in, in finding the, you know, the ultimate answers to those big questions. And one of the questions I always had was, why does everything turn to shit? Um, excuse my language. Why is it that so many good intentions and so many um, brave initiatives end up becoming its own opposite. And how is this possible? If we are all trying to be good and we are trying to be decent human beings, how is it that we manage to continually create the kind of monstrous cultures that go off and, and, and slaughter each other in wars and, and prey on their own people through slavery and, and so forth? So that second divergent study was, you know, how does this happen all the time? What is it? Because when you look through history, it's the same game replayed over and over ad nauseum. I mean, it's always the same pattern. It's always the same characters. It's always the same results, death, misery, suffering. How is that possible? What is the mechanism behind that? And so the solution to finding out the reason for so many of our social ills, and finding the cause for so many of our, uh, uh, so much of the crime in society is one and the same. That is the psychopath. And also, unlike uh, most of all who deal with psychopathy, you show that psychopathy is not only, uh, does not only occur on an individual level, but also on the, on the collective level. You describe some groups, some gangs, even some group of policemen, or armies, or even governments, nations, being uh, victims of a collective psychopathization. <laughs> Sorry for the neurologism. Oh, polarization. Yeah, polarization. Yeah, it's, 
I make the distinction, as other researchers have also made it, um, that there are two types of um, basic types of psychopaths. One that is, as you mentioned earlier, probably the result of some sort of genetic component. The, um, I myself have been torn back and forth between nature and nurture in all my researches. I, I, I'm still trying to differentiate which is the, the predominant influence. <coughs> Excuse me. But I can't, I can't fall on either side. I, I'm leaning currently towards a genetic influence, but perhaps there is still also an environmental influence that triggers a gene to come into play. So who knows? Environment, genetic. But there are certain types of people, they are born that way, uh, whether it was triggered, their genes were triggered through behavior or abuse early in life, and that triggered a gene in them to change their, their uh, mental makeup or not, or whether that, that mental uh, condition was there present from birth without any external influence. I don't know. But there is the primary psychopath, and they're just born bad. And then there's the secondary psychopath, or what I call secondary psychopath. Other researchers designate different terms for this, but they all basically describe the, uh, uh, the same phenomenon or the same condition, and that is people who are through culture and through a group absolved of moral responsibility for their individual actions. And therefore, once you are absolved of moral responsibility, um, then you are free to behave as a psychopath would. And often they do because depending on the leadership of the group, um, the group may be a psychopathic entity. And so everyone within the group now must behave that way. So, for example, we know during the, it's often quoted that during the Nuremberg trials after World War II that uh, uh, many of the uh, Nazi accusers uh, could uh, used a defense saying they were simply following orders. Well, that certainly is a statement to their secondary psychopathic nature. Yes, they're just following orders, the orders of psychopaths for them in order to behave like psychopaths. I find that most groups tend to be conscious-less. They, they, they don't have a conscience. The mob is an irrational entity composed of the components of the individual members that compose a mob. But a mob itself cannot have a conscience. It cannot behave like an individual human that has a heart and an intelligence and a soul. A mob is a monstrous amalgamation of individuals. So I'm not a big fan of mobs. That's why I don't go to sports uh, games. I'm not a a big uh, political fan of any of the political parties. I don't belong to any major religions. I don't like belonging to a large group because I find those large groups tend to be without a soul, without a conscience, and um, basically psychopathic. Well, don't you think that there's a possibility that that could be turned around and work the other way? Because it seems to me that we evolved... Uh, because of social ties and social cares and concern for one another. And uh, there's a lot to be said for uh, groups of people that work together for a positive goal, a positive future. And I think that perhaps the key element would be leadership, uh, I mean real leadership. And, of course, we know that psychopaths mimic 
the traits of leadership uh, so well, but they turn everything, as you say, to, you know, shit. So, uh, you know, because we, we've done some, some research with uh, Bob Altemeyer's uh, ideas with um, authoritarian personality, the follower. And there's the, the leader and the follower. This is what he calls them. But I think his authoritarian leader is more a psychopath than anything else, so he doesn't use that terminology. And he... Uh, he did some studies at the university level, and he, I think he were pretty much psychology students that he was working with, but he found that like 45% of the uh, students in his study, in his survey, were the authoritarian follower type personality. So that's a pretty high percentage. It's kind of scary. And then uh, uh, another study was done on, in psychology uh, courses, psychology students, to show that 25% of them had the Machiavellian traits of psychopaths. So it's, uh, you know, I think that the only way people will be able to do anything about the psychopathy in our world would be as groups, but they would have to, they'd have to achieve a different kind of limbic resonance, as Martha Stout calls it, than, than that induced in them by a psychopathic leader. What do you think? Do you think we could do that? Um yeah, we, you know, I'm working with a, a bit of a paradox because on the one hand, I am very mistrustful on, of groups. On the other hand, I think the only way we can save ourselves is by forming groups. Um, for example, um, are you familiar with the robber's cave experiments that they did back in the 50s with, uh, with uh, I believe it was Boy Scouts? And... Um, they set it up one month that all the Boy Scouts were divided into teams and they were set into competitive uh, games against each other. And, you know, after a month, yeah, the, you know, the blue team hated the red team and the red team hated the green team and so forth. And they caused a lot of division. And even, you know, the boys started to get violent and into fist fights with each other. Then the next month they eliminated the teams and they had all the boys work together uh, communally to uh, solve problems and lo and behold after a month the violence ceased and the uh, the uh, uh, cooperation increased and uh, things went back sort of to, to normal another type of uh, another experiment that comes to mind was uh, actually it wasn't an experiment it was a documentary on the effects of stress on the heart and this was a, a mainstream documentary, I believe it was National Geographic, and I don't remember the researcher's name right now, but what he did is he was in Africa and he studied the behavior of baboons. And they did autopsies on the baboons, and they did autopsies on the various baboons down through the pecking order because a baboon tribe uh, has a very strict hierarchical order. And they found that the people... The, the baboons at the bottom of the order had the most stress and therefore had the most heart disease, irregardless of what they had eaten or uh, in their diets, which um, they <clears throat> used to show that, you know, all are concerned about high-fat foods and cholesterol. All of this pales in comparison to how stressed are you because stress is the major um, um, uh, cause of heart disease, not, not so much diet at all. Right, I agree. Then a strange, right. I... right? <clears throat> then a strange thing happened with this baboon tribe that they were uh, studying. The uh, 
the dominant male baboons were very aggressive, and they would, you know, beat the females, and the females would then go on and beat the lesser females, and they would go on and beat the, <laughs> in turn, beat the children, and so the violence started at the top, and it worked its way down. The, the dominant baboons abused everybody else, and then everyone in that hierarchical order abused that baboon below them on the pecking order. But what happened was the dominant baboons had gotten into a garbage dump where a bunch of medical waste material had been dumped. And because they were the dominant baboons, of course, they got first pickings on the food that was dumped into this, uh, into this uh, uh, garbage dump, this medical dump. And they all got sick and died. Uh, hmm. And so the remaining baboons were not the dominant ones, and it turned out that their entire structure changed. Instead of this violence starting at the top and working its way down and every baboon beating the one that's lower than them in the pecking order, now they, the, the researchers discovered that there was much more a grooming behavior and cooperative behavior and that the level of violence completely disappeared in this baboon tribe. And then even when dominant male baboons from another tribe tried to infiltrate this one, the females would no longer endure the type of beatings they had received previously. <laughs> and so now these dominant male baboons, they either had to submit to the group values of mutual cooperation and mutual grooming and you're not getting away with the smacking everybody around nonsense anymore because we've done with that it turned out that they also adopted the more peaceful and, and cooperative types of nature that the females and, and, and the lower ranking members of the previous baboon tribe now adopted so I thought you know the, the, the entire documentary was regarding stress and heart disease, and of course they did the autopsies on the uh, the now new type of baboon society, and lo and behold, their heart disease had completely disappeared. So without these dominant, you know, call them what you will, but they were bastard baboons, you know, violent, aggressive, really obnoxious baboons. With them gone, everybody else was happier. Not only were they happier, they no longer had heart disease. So. To me, both of those, the, the Robbers Cave experiment and, and the Baboon Tribe uh, study, showed that if we can rid ourselves of the leadership from these malevolent monsters that have taken over the organs of our culture and our society, if we can rid ourselves of their influence, the rest of the humanity could probably return to being productive, cooperative, happy, peaceful, and loving beings that we really were meant to be. I think so. And there, there's another thing that uh, I noticed in this story, uh, which is really a great story and it kind of gives you hope, um, is uh, the, the factor that um, these baboons, um, well, not only did they turn peaceful, but they started taking care of each other. Exactly, did it? They started taking care of each other. Yeah, so we got this weird feedback. <laughs> Something else that I know, was interesting. It's like five-second delay. <clears throat> In the Boy Scout um, experiment, it was interesting to see how dividing population triggered violence and aggression. And it might explain why our psychopathic leaders keep dividing the population. You see all those mainstream media talking about white versus black, Muslim versus Christian, or unemployed versus employed, or public servants versus private employees. 
or homosexual versus heterosexual men against women. Yeah, there all those divisions that are created within the population. Yeah, there's another thing too, which is uh, the, the the idea of the violence coming down from the top and everybody behaving the way the leaders behave, only towards those that are lower than them. Nowadays, we see this in our in our society. I mean, since uh, 2001, when everything went to hell, um, our society mm-hmm. has just you know completely. It's just it's just unbelievable to have been a witness to what's happened. And now, you know, it's to the point where nobody dares to call a policeman to come and help them because they'll break in their home and shoot everybody. Uh, the the behavior of children, this this game that they're playing, what's it called, where they go around and, and beat up on a... They, yeah, they yeah. knock someone out, a random stranger. Yeah, that knockout thing, and then these flash mobs and uh, the shootings, the... Uh, you know whether or not they're engineered or uh, created to uh, induce panic in the population is you know kind of irrelevant because a certain amount of that sort of thing is is happening so it's like the entire society is behaving like the leaders uh psychopathic uh angry rage greed uh, people who go to the to the shopping malls for a sale that you know trample each other, knock each other, people that get killed, for God's sakes, going to a sale or or for a laptop or one of these what do they call those things with the finger iPad, the iPad, yeah, those things. <laughs> I'm not technologically advanced here. The thing with you the finger. So that this is what I'm seeing, and I'm seeing that human beings are acting according to the example that has been set for them, and at the same time what's happening is the people at the top are imposing more and more laws on the people at the bottom to control this kind of behavior, and they don't realize that the easiest way, I mean, of course they can't realize it because they're psychopaths, but the easiest way to improve the behavior of a society is for the people at the top, for the people who represent uh, law and order and so forth, to behave circumspectly and decently themselves. I mean, look at this this crazy guy who's the president of France with his serial philandering, for God's sakes. Jeez. Ah, rant over. And then there's, yeah, no, it's, then there's the mayor of Toronto. Oh, yeah. Do you have an opinion on him, uh, Stefan? What? Just another psychopath, please. You know, yeah. the, I mean, the guy lied and lied and lied. What? Don't... People understand about him. He, you know, they asked him a hundred times, "Did you smoke crack? Did you know anything about a video? Did you know?" No, never. Outrageous indignation. Oh my God! How dare anybody ask me such questions? Then, oh well, yeah, I did it. And, you know, the same thing with all of them, with Clinton and all those guys. Oh, did you sleep with that woman? Oh no, not sleep with her. You know, I just got uh, you know, oral not, sex. I did not have sex with that woman. Exactly. Oral sex is not sex. And, you know, I mean, and then <laughs> afterwards, of course, it comes out. Well, well, mea culpa. Yeah, I guess I did. But I've moved on. You know, I don't want to play the blame game now. We've moved on. Let's not bring up the past. Hey, please, you know, uh, anybody that is a compulsive liar like that, I mean, to get up in front of, you know, two million people and say, oh, no, no, not me. How could you dare say this? I mean, I could not do that. OK, because I have a conscience. I can't. Look you in the eye and bullshit you that 
badly. I'm not capable of it, all right? I, I would blush. I would sweat. Uh, I, I would be ashamed. I would stay home for months and not mm-hmm. face people if I ever had to do something that, you know, psychopathic. But this guy does it every day and then goes back to work and then puts on the chains of office and the robes and, and runs around and, and then becomes indignant that anybody should ask him twice whether or not he smoked crack. Well, he's already answered that question. We've moved on. How dare you? You know, so what? But what? Some, is he different? He's a politician. What do you people think? Well, something that strikes me about Rob Ford, the, the mayor of Toronto we're talking about here, um, I think 20 years ago, he would not have been able to continue, never mind, you know, not resign and actually run for election again. Now, I, that no. doesn't mean that the qualitatively a psychopath has changed. I think what's changed maybe is that the acceptance. It's accepted now. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we started writing about psychopathy in 2002. And we started getting death threats, believe it or not. And we watched mm-hmm. how things moved and developed. And then we had our own personal defamers and blah, 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 you know, moving along. What happened was we started noticing, once, once it started really getting out on the web, I mean, ponerology, psychopathy, psychopaths in power, et cetera, et cetera, with a little you know, help from other quarters. Then this guy, what's his name, Ron, Ron, somebody or other, who writes this book about the advantages of being a psychopath? Kevin well, Dutton. Kevin Dutton, sorry. So he, so he writes, so, so now psychopaths are cool. You're supposed to be one, you know. I mean, they have all these advantages. We should celebrate our psychopaths and put them in positions of power or put them in positions of control because they never get nervous. They never sweat. They never mm. blush. You know, they never... They never feel fear, et cetera, even if, you know, they can fake it. But Well, it was interesting that that book came out at, uh, in, in the past few years because it's, it's for me, it's symptomatic of, of the problem, which is that, like we've just been talking, uh, the, normalized. It's, it's been normalized, it's accepted, it's, you know, it's, it's at the point where he can write a book like that and, and it can become a bestseller and people can... And people uh, actually quote it. They have come on our forum and quoted it favorably as, oh, well, he's got a point here. Exactly. And, I mean, talk about blood pressure going through the roof. Mine just, you know, shot up through the top of my head. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually uh, embarrassed to say I'm not familiar with this book, but I think the concept is nothing new. They've been glorifying psychopaths for thousands of years now. Yeah. Um, the whole, uh, for example, I've been recently researching uh, the Hundred Years War of England and uh, the whole, uh, uh, you know, veneration for the royal bloodline. I mean, it's, bunch it's of damn mad. psychopaths. They're a bunch of exactly. They're psychopaths. Look at what these people did. You know, most of them murdered their entire families, and then they went on to murder tens of thousands and. You know, in the case of Genghis Khan and, and, and some of the Middle Eastern wars and, and or Far Eastern wars, millions of people, millions of people died and the suffering. And, you know, people don't even understand that it's not just the number of people that they personally killed. It's all the families of, that have lost people, the, the devastation the, 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 that results in, you know, alcoholism and drug abuse and, and divorces and child abuse and... You know, it's a ripple effect. One person is brutally murdered because of some psychopath, and that affects the entire community that that person had come from. And so the ripple effects of, you know, poverty, drug addiction, prostitution, child abuse, all of this ripples away 
from these initial acts of violence, all instigated by the royal bloodline. And then everyone has to get down on their knees and, and, and bow and scrape and worship these people. I mean, it, it's madness. I read, I read history and I go, what, what, how can they do that? You know, all these uh, poor peasants, for example, you know, in the siege of Agincourt or the Battle of Agincourt, that was the most recent of the many endless slaughters that one reads about in history instigated by some psychopath. Well, you know, and even the documentarians, and, you know, I, I really object to their, you know, the type of propagandizing that they use in this, because they blithely state that the peasants were fighting for country. No, they weren't fighting for country. They were attacking France mm-hmm. so that the psychopath in charge could rob the French people. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to get any of the money from uh, 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 occupying Aquitaine. They were going to go back to their pigsties and live in their mud huts and, and, and uh, pay their taxes and say <laughs> died a, a brutal death at an early age. Why the hell would they be fighting for country? They're not fighting for country, but everybody says, oh, the documentarian, the narrators, the authorities say, oh, well, they, they fought for country and king. No, they didn't. They fought for a psychopath in his attempts at robbery. But, uh, you know, who do exactly. I that to? And it's the same you know, thing now. We've got... We've got this so-called, you know, war against Iraq, you know, want to bomb Iran, war in Afghanistan, uh, you know, here, there, everywhere, all that mess that went on down in Central America, South America. I mean, all of this stuff that the U.S. has been doing for all these years, and it's supposed to be protecting the world for freedom or exporting democracy, et cetera. And all it is is just a freaking uh, land uh, goods power grab. I mean, it's just going out there to get more booty for themselves. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, uh, it's mass rape and robbery. That's all it is. One of one of the things that um, interested me or got me thinking the most when I was reading your book, or rather your, the excerpt from your from your book, uh, the Defense Against the Psychopath, is at the very beginning. The very first paragraph says, "In the urban environment, criminals fulfill nature's role of predators." And of course, we can probably substitute the word "criminal" there, as you explained later on, for psychopath. So. In our modern, or well, in our in the human uh, society, uh, or in terms of human life on on planet Earth, psychopaths fulfill nature's role of predators, and that's something that people don't really think about a lot. I think because people tend to think that we're so much more evolved than the animal kingdom. You know, they recognise that there are predators. You see it everywhere. Every single species on the planet of, of animal has a predator. Uh, but mm. we are so detached from that animal kingdom because we're somehow fundamentally superior and different. We what we don't have uh, predators, but of course we're just part of this living natural system. So we're just another species on the planet. So, but yes, we are more evolved in many ways. But that simply means that the rule that all species need to have a pre- predator apparently means that our predator, as a more evolved species, will, will be more evolved, more subtle, and will be much more. Um, in tune with with our evolved capabilities, and the psychopath fits that role perfectly. Uh, and and it's just something that people. I think it's one of the things, uh, one of the blocks for people to, to 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 for them to accept the idea of psychopaths and the idea that they are predators of normal human beings, because that automatically makes them think of the animal kingdom. And well, that's not us. We're better than that. That can't happen. We're all one. And you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Psychopaths are, are predators. I, you know, I have uh, 
you know, one foot firmly in the, the path of spirituality and the other foot firmly in the path of science. And I'm always trying to find a, uh, a, a natural scientific explanation for it. And so when I was researching uh, psychopaths, I also decided to research predator-prey ratios in wildlife. And you find that the predator-prey ratio is pretty much similar to what... Uh, I believe the psychopath to normal ratio is among humans, which is about 22 or about 20%. So for every uh, 10 wildebeest, there will be two lions that will prey on them. Mm-hmm. And it seems that for every 10 humans, there are two psychopaths born. Now, I know the official figures are 3 to 5%, but I tend to find that, it, or I, I tend to believe that it might be a little bit higher. And it might be higher now because we've been breeding for psychopaths for so many years that, uh, you know, the, those humans that are born with a lot of empathy and a lot of compassion, well, you know, we know what happens to them. They get tortured and murdered. Um, <laughs> I'm fond of, I'm not a Christian. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to interject there and say that one of the... Uh I mean, talking about the number of psychopaths in, in human society, I mean, you, you said it's 3 to 5, or we kind of tend to think 6%. But what people... No, I think uh, Stefan said 20%. Tw- well, I, we I, tend I, to think 6%, but Stefan's saying 20%. We but say my point, 6% because we're kind of like, you know... No, but here's the point. The point that I'm trying to make is that people tend to think 6%. Well, that's pretty small. But what people don't understand is that, as you say in your book... Um, at a particular point, you say uh, the reason that the more competitive a particular environment is, the more ruthless the use of the cheating strategy becomes. Oh, sorry, mm-hmm. you say the reason is that uh, basically that you're saying you're saying that basically in a very particular in a very competitive environment there will be more uh, ruthlessness and it'll select for psychopathy. So the point being that take six percent, you say twenty, some people may say I six, think whatever. He's right with that twenty. Okay, but listen, yeah. the, the point is. Six percent is four hundred million people. They're not. They're unlikely, given what Stefan says. They're unlikely to be to be spread equally across the globe. Vast. Uh, you know what I mean? The, the, mm-hmm. There's different. They'll different concentrate societies. in places depending on where they're or, attracted. Exactly. I.e. So in big cities, for a start, and in particular countries that are very competitive, uh, that kind of selects for psychopathy. Take New York. In that situation, even with a, a, a number of 6% of the population, you could have 25, 30, 40% of the population of New York, for concentrated, example, yeah. concentrated in that city. So that makes it much more, more scary, you know? Well, yeah, I, and I think... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I think that it's what has happened. That they've certainly concentrated. I, I don't think you're going to find 20% of psychopaths in a rural community. No. I don't. No, but I, I think the I think the number is a lot higher than the uh, than the experts acknowledge, and I think uh, I think you can get that just from your from your experience if you interact with a lot of people like we do, and you know we say we go we go with six percent when we write about it because that's the upper limit of what uh, some of the experts have said, so we kind of go with that. But my personal experience is that it's got to be higher than that. And I, and I uh, and, and like you, you know, I've observed down through history uh, again and again and again, the people with heart, the people with conscience, uh, the people with creativity have been selectively exterminated. And the mm. people with the power and the money, like you're talking about the royal families and so forth, you know, they have selectively uh, bred up 
you know, super strains of psychopathy. And then, as we know, they spread their genes in certain ways. So it's, uh, it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be higher than 1%, 3%, 5%, or even 6%. It's gotta be. Well, that's been my experience too. Now, it may be that, you know, the 3 to 6% are the primary psychopaths that are actually born psychopaths, mm-hmm. and then maybe perhaps the other 14% are made up of secondary psychopaths. People that, let's face it, they have a weak will, they don't have a strong character, or otherwise you cannot be converted into a psychopath. Um, for example, you know, I've joined Boy Scouts, I've been parts of groups and things like that, but um, if that group engaged in a type of criminal behavior that I morally objected to, I wouldn't go along with it. You know, I have you know, the independence and the strength of character to say no to a bunch of people. I, it doesn't bother me. I'm not going to compromise my values in order to fit into a group. However, there are lots of people that will. So it may be that the other 14% are these people that don't have a strong conscience and don't have a strong, um, what can you say, dare I use the word soul or spirit? Yes, you dare. Yes, you dare. You know, they don't have the soul to resist it. And so they may not have been born psychopaths. They may have been, you know, lovely children. But for some reason, they now are psychopaths. And whether you were born a psychopath or you become one through a group and through indoctrination or through, the, you know, the lack of a soul to, to, to fight the, the tendency, it doesn't matter for the rest of us victims because to us, you will all act the same. So... Whether yeah, you're genetic, whether you're yeah. created, we're still the victims, you know, uh, if some guy rapes you and, and, and robs you, do you want to hear the story about his abusive upbringing? You don't care. You're being raped and robbed. So the same thing, I, you know, I, do I feel sorry for people that, that had, you know, horrible upbringings? Absolutely, I do. But once you're a psychopath, I can't, you know, uh, bare my throat to you because I can't trust that. So it may be that is partly made up of, you know, the two different types of psychopaths. How do you defend yourself against psychopaths? Well, I'm working on an article called Antidote to the Psychopath, and, and, and that is something that, uh, you know, we as individuals can do and, and change in our lives that would try to um, mitigate the influence of the people, but on a personal level, the most important thing, I, I think, is awareness. Uh, first of all, you have to understand the subject, and you also have to face the fear that this subject would raise in people. I find one of the biggest um, fallacy or one of the biggest obstacles to people realizing what they're dealing with is this idea that everyone is born with a soul and everyone is unique and special and that somehow you can you can uh, reform these people i find that this is not true people are not born equal they're born with wide-ranging sets of skills and 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 moral behavior and um, you cannot feel sympathy for these people. You have to understand what you're dealing with. That, to me, is the first thing. And that's why I came out with the, uh, with the video defense against the psychopath, which is uh, just the first chapter from the book. Again, I wanted to do a very quick, clear, you know, and, and as brief as possible. I always call it a uh, Reader's Digest version of psychopathy mm-hmm. so that you can have the tools in order to understand what it is you're dealing with. 
So the first thing is facing understanding the subject and to face the fact that there are really nasty people out there. And then to defend yourself against them, the best course of action is disengagement, keeping a distance from them, don't, getting, don't get involved with them. And uh, attacking them, I, I never recommend attacking a psychopath. Most people can never pull it off. They're, they are so clever in the way they manipulate you that you really need to have, you know, what I call a warrior spirit to tackle these people head on. I mean, you have to be, first of all, fearless, and also you have to be incredibly intelligent and quick thinking because they can quickly change maneuvers and tactics. And if you can't follow along with that, they will, you know, blindside you. They'll come up behind you. They'll sucker punch you. Just like in a combat situation, you have to maintain a fluid state of mind and be able to adapt quickly. And a lot of, most people can't do that. It's not something you were ever taught in school how to do the kind of mental agility. Um, some people are born with it. They're clever. They're articulate and, and, and uh, glib, perhaps, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. They can think quickly and they have a strong core from which to draw their strengths. They might have a chance of attacking a psychopath and defeating that, that person on their own, at their own game. <clears throat> but for the vast majority of people, my best recommendation is to understand what you're dealing with. Try to recognize when someone is behaving like a psychopath and then simply cut yourself off from them. Try to escape and evade. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a, <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me. There's another kind of psychopath, psychopath that uh, that uh, we've encountered, we've encountered, which which is described by Martha Stout, Martha Stout, which, which is described and also uh, who is this other, in her book, the uh, psychopath next door, who we interviewed recently, recently, and they talk and about the kind that. That gets you by pity. You by pity. Uh, that the uh, their their the, tactic, their, their strategy is their strategy to evoke pity in you and get you under their thrall because, because inside their mind they're laughing like crazy at all the crazy. things they're making you do through pity. Through pity. And mm-hmm. uh, this this is something this, this, quite different from what you would call the violent street type of psychopath, but they are. Uh, what you call a non-criminal psychopath, but they are just as devastating. They destroy people's lives. They destroy relationships. They cost people lots of money. Uh, they create division and discord in groups. Um, I mean, just really uh, create problems in society, but how do you deal with that? I mean, people get taken in by pity all the time. Unsalter is the authority we are referring to, I think. Unsalter. And a salter. And, well, she's not the only right. one. Martha Stout also. Yeah. I mean, she yes. she talks about it right at the end of the the sociopath next door, and I think she she made a big mistake calling it sociopath. She should have just been cur- courageous enough to use the word psychopath. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, yeah, in my uh, chapter, um, that type of psychopath is listed under the victim they're professional victims. And I'll be honest with you, I have been suckered this way many times. Uh, I tend to be a very sympathetic person. I feel badly for people. Um, it's easy f- for me to see somebody who's suffering and for me to want to help them. Um, you know, I've always been a 
uh, a big tall guy and uh you know pretty strong and uh rough and tumble and so you know i really had the old uh, white knight type yeah. of syndrome you know ingrained in me at, at an early age i always wanted to be the hero and save people and to help them and I also feel for them, so it was easy for me to assume that type of persona of, of the White Knight, and uh, well, it's also helped to inspire my study of the martial arts too. Of course, if you're a, a White Knight, you have to know the ways of war. Um, but I've been um, that had been a weakness that uh, a few psychopaths have used to prey on, and it's really difficult for me. For example, I have family members that are that type. The victim psychopath. They're um, cerebral narcissists. They just, uh, you know, they can do no wrong and uh, they know everything. And uh, but they're always suffering and they always need my assistance. And after, I would say, uh, 40 years, <coughs> excuse me, after 40 years of doing everything I thought I should do to improve their lives and to help them and to help them find the way and uh, to a better life and to happiness and and health and uh, you know giving them money and, and going doing things for them taking them places driving them around cleaning their houses you know uh, and always you know the end result is I've spent a lot of time and uh, received uh, not that I expect thanks, but instead I received more misery and more manipulation. So what happened is I had to cut them off. So I'm completely alienated from my family. I don't have family anymore. I can't be around them because it doesn't anymore. It doesn't have major emotional loss to me. It's like you keep treating the wall. The wall is not going to be your head is going to be glass. You have to stop. But for me, I feel it. Besides the Christmas time, have an empty inner life. They have no soul. They they don't understand the joy of being alive on this planet, and 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 how in, in inspiring that is. They have no creativity, no joy, no happiness. They no internal life. And I feel terrible for them. I really do. I wish I could go there at Christmas and bring presents. And, but I know that won't do any good. It's not going to help them. And so trying to fight against the victim type of psychopath is very difficult because usually if you're going to have a victim psychopath feeding off you, it's either somebody you're married to or dating or it's somebody in your family. The stranger on the street hardly ever gets their hooks into you that way. So it's somebody that's probably close to you already in some way. And now you have to get that hook out of you and you have to cut them off. And who's going to suffer for that? Not them. They don't feel anything. Mm-hmm. You suffer. So that makes it doubly hard on people. Yeah. Stefan, you, you mentioned... Uh this white knight syndrome. At the same yes. time, in your book there, you recommend a lot of caution, awareness. And so how did you find the right balance between this natural intrinsic kindness and this almost uh, paranoid but legitimate stance? Yeah, how do you find uh, the right balance? I know, I know. And that is difficult because, you know, you want to tell people, um, listen, you can't trust uh, everybody. You can't trust them. And at the same time, I don't want to be... Uh, 
you know, a, a mistrustful person. I don't want to yeah. alienate myself from humanity. I am a very uh, empathetic person. I, I love people. I love to get together with people and share things and enjoy good times together. Uh, music and food and, and nature and activities. Uh, to me, that lifts me up and, and that is my joy in life. But now, how do you balance that? You know, you, on the one hand, you can't trust anybody because you can, can't tell immediately whether or not somebody is a psychopath. That's something that only comes out through careful observation and watching their behavior. And at the other hand, do I want to condemn all people because some of us are psychopaths? So it is a difficult balancing uh, uh, um, position to make. What I do, first of all, it helps because I'm, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm a big guy, I'm, I'm tough, I've studied martial arts for 25 years. So there's nothing too much that scares me. I'm not afraid of these psychopaths. So I can be a little bit more open towards people and not worry that I will be screwed by the psychopath because, number one, I'm a big guy. Number two, I also studied the subject now. So what I do is I've learned to give people – first of all, I don't want to ever see anybody suffer if somebody's on the, on the, lying on the side of the road. I will be the first to stop and see if they're okay. If, if, if I see somebody that's hungry, um, I will be the first one to go and buy them a sandwich. Um, I can't tell you how many cats we've rescued because I'll sound like the crazy cat lady. But I cannot you know, stand by and, and see suffering. But on the other hand, I limit how much I give. So if I see a homeless person, we've had homeless people in for Thanksgiving dinner and Christmas dinner. You know, after seeing them on the street for weeks and months, I get to know them a little bit. Then I will invite them into the house for dinner. Mm -hmm. The same thing if I'm going to try and help somebody. I need to know them a little bit. I'm willing to give five bucks to anybody. I don't care. Psychopath, alcoholic, whatever. Five bucks, I got it. Fine, take it. hundred bucks? No, not a hundred bucks. So what I do is I limit to what I give to people based on the time I've known them multiplied by the degree I've, I trust them. So I will keep an open mind. I, would, you know, I still want to be loving and caring for my fellow human beings, but they are just not going to get you know, my PIN number to my credit card. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to get a key to my house. I'm not going to let them know all the details of my life. I tend to keep it you know, a little bit closer to the shirt now. Until and, and unless I've seen through uh, their behavior over time that they are more trustworthy, and then I'll be willing to give more. Uh, Stefan, we uh, we may have a call here. I'm just going to uh, go ahead and try and uh, hook it up because uh, sometimes we get people calling in who are just calling in to listen, and, we, and it's not actually a call, so I'm not sure if it's a call, but I'm going to go ahead and talk to the person anyway and see what they want. Okay. Hi, caller. Uh, do we have a caller on the line? Caller. Uh, Hello. Nobody home. Is anyone on the line calling in? There obviously is, but I don't know. Maybe they're just listening in. Okay, that was not a call then. Maybe it's someone just listening in. I have a, a quick question, Stefan. Well, uh, mm-hmm. a slightly changing topic, but I find it interesting, this uh, kicking tiger technique. Well, I guess we won't expand much uh, on self-defense and uh, weapons and all that, but this kicking tiger, I find it very interesting for kids, women that might be victims of aggression. So could you expand a bit more on this topic? 
Sure. You're uh, referring to my book, The Little Warriors, and um, that little book uh, or that series of books came out of, uh, again, my martial arts instruction. I used to teach children, and before, to be honest with you, I didn't want to teach children. I personally thought kids are too young to learn martial arts. I don't want six, seven, eight-year-old kids learning martial arts. That's something that's good for teenagers. Uh, in order to develop esteem, and especially for young men, because once they get into the teens and the hormones start raging, let's face it, they need vigorous physical activity to burn off that energy and a physical activity that will contribute to their self-esteem and and, and, uh, their self-confidence. So I've always been a big fan for uh, teenagers to go be part of an Outward Bound program to learn canoeing and camping and wilderness skills and also martial arts. It's a good way to uh, uh, develop some self-discipline. It's a great way to develop confidence because they're actually working towards goals and achieving things. But I thought, you know, young kids, no, they shouldn't learn it because it's too violent. I don't want, I didn't think it was right to teach young children violence. But at the same time, many young kids are victims of kidnapping. You see the pedophile ring, so there might be a need. Exactly, but then there you go. Here again we come to the predator. What is the predator of young children? And the predators of young children are pedophiles. So we can't say, well, let's wait until they're 16 before they enroll them in a karate class because by the time they're 16, they're not likely to be targeted by a pedophile. So that's why I changed my mind with teaching the young kids. But what I did was I changed it differently. I, I'm not teaching them sparring. I'm not teaching them, you know, how to break fingers and how to punch and kick. Well, a little bit of punching and kicking, but uh, it's not in context of combat. It's more of an exercise. But in the context of teaching them how to defend against uh, stranger abduction and also pedophiles, and not just stranger abduction, because most pedophiles will be somebody that they know, a family mm-hmm. friend, a, a priest, a school teacher, counselor. So what I did was I started to uh, indoctrinate the kids. I was brainwashing them. I was manipulating <laughs> them. But in, because, but in a good way, because first of all, you're not going to take, take a six-year-old kid and explain to them what a pedophile is and, and, and no. uh, what a pedophile is going to do to them. You can't do that. So what I did instead is I used a bit of manipulation and I taught them things about what behavior patterns are suspicious. And so, you know, if an adult tells you to keep a secret from your parents, that's suspicious. Nobody else should ask you to keep a secret from your parents. So I would slip that into the karate class, you know, a lesson about it, and we'd talk about it, and then I would do some role-playing. And um, the other thing would be is if you're walking down the street and an adult comes up and he uh, you know, grabs your hand and starts to pull you in a direction, um, that behavior is suspicious. And so through role-playing techniques, I would you know, have the kid come up to the front of the class, and I'd say, okay, pretend you're in the park and I'm a stranger. Now I'm going to walk up to you and I'm going to grab your hand. What do you do? Well, all of them would walk along with me, you know, and I would say, nope, wrong, this is what you do. And the technique, the best self-defense technique that a child or an adult can do to prevent being dragged away is to drop to the ground so that you become a dead weight. You have the resistance 
the friction of your body on the ground that they now have to deal with. I mean, if a kid's standing on his feet, you grab his arm, and they're still walking, well, it's nothing to pull them into a car. But if now they're lying flat on the ground with their full body spread out, using as much resistance and as much as their body weight to resist you pulling them, this now becomes a little bit more of an ordeal for the uh, kidnapper. And finally, to use the leg that is facing the kidnapper to kick against the knees and kick against the hand and kick against the shins because the the feet of a child is or and, and the legs of any human being is the strongest part of their body and would deliver the most vicious blow. So the kicking tiger is a technique whereby if a child is being pulled away against his or her will and they want to resist that attacker, then forget about, you know, punching them or, or doing a karate chop or doing a, you know, spinning side kick to the side of their head. That, that doesn't work. But if the attacker turns around the kid, the kid cannot kick the attacker on the chin anymore. Or is there of a course. Trick? I know. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many karate schools I went to and, and watched their children's classes and the instructors all told these kids to uh, kick some guy in the head that's, uh, you know, that's bothering them. <laughs> you don't kick anybody in the head. It never works. Yeah. So that, that's kicking tire, tiger. Um, I, that's what I called it, you know, to give it a name for the kids. Uh, but it's the best resistance. And women can use this, too. Yes. Just drop down to the ground, get onto your side. And you kind of pivot. You use your hip as the balance point. You use your arms to turn. And then your legs are always facing your attacker. Exactly. And those legs are like cannon on a turret. You know, um, as soon as the attacker moves left or right, you keep those legs, keep pivoting, aiming those legs at them. And as soon as they come in close, you stomp down as hard as you can on their knee, on their shin, because the weak spot for everybody, no matter how big and tough you are, somebody takes out your kneecap, you go down. And so that's kicking tiger. I hope that explains it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's another thing in your book that really kind of struck me, and it, it just, like we said at the beginning, the way uh, you describe it in a very concise, sim- simple, and yeah. to the point and understandable way. Um, it was uh, where you talk about motive, uh, the nature of the psychopath basically just doing things more or less kind of for kicks not really having any motive as normal people understand it. So you give the example of a millionaire psychopath would readily rob a starving child. And then you go on to say, uh, there's no obvious logic to what motives, or sorry, to what motives could underlie that kind of behavior. And for that reason, psychopaths often elude justice for this very reason. Uh, and it struck me that that was a very important uh, point, And it also it explains why as we were talk, talking about before, so many um, uh, politicians and people in positions of authority can get away with so many things because they do things that to our normal or the normal human mind don't make sense in terms of the way that they are explained or, for example, in a court of law, a court, uh, you mentioned this as well, uh, uh, in a court case, they're looking for motive to, to prosecute someone. But if there's no obvious understandable from a normal human perspective motive, well, then they're more likely to acquit or be able to get away with what they're doing. And um, I think that really explains a lot of what we're seeing and what we have seen in the world for the past forever. <laughs> Too long. Yeah, no, uh, you're absolutely right. The, you know, 
we tend to think other people are like us, that our internal dialogue, so to speak, our, our, our values are what other people share. The thing is that the psychopath is so completely alien to our thinking, we can never understand exactly what goes on inside their minds. So their motives are completely unknown to us. We really can't fathom what's going on there. You know, I've always tell people, you know, the, the human mind is a black box. You know, you can measure the effects of it from the outside. You can, you know, do tests on it and you can uh, try to find some, you know, metrics. But you can never open up the box and see exactly what's going on inside. And the same thing with the human mind. You know, uh, I think I know people. I think they must think like I do. They must have, you know, similar values and thought processes that I do. I assume that. But to be honest with you, I don't know because I can't open up a human mind and, and, and compare and, and, and see whether or not they are exactly like that. And one thing we do know for sure is that the psychopath's mind is alien to what all the rest of us would think. So what motivates them are things that would never occur to you, never occur to me. Otherwise, before I'd studied this subject, it would never occur to me that somebody would, uh, you know, literally cut their nose off to spike their face. And this is often the case with psychopaths. They will kill the golden goose. I mean, look at what's happening here in, in, in North America, in the United States, and here in Canada. The, the richest, most productive nations that the world has ever seen throughout its history and it's being destroyed from within by the very psychopaths that profit from it. Go figure. How can you predict something like that? You would think that, well, you know, if, I've, if I'm a slave owner, I want all my slaves to be happy producing lots of goods for me to uh, uh, exploit and become rich from. And yet here's the slave owners that are, uh, uh, you know, poisoning the wells the slaves drink out of and, and making sure they have inferior food and that uh, they're working longer hours and producing less. Mm-hmm. Who would figure out that either plan? Uh, but obviously it is. So, yeah, uh, but that, there is. Yeah, that's actually part of the problem, isn't it? They don't actually plan to destroy everything. It's just what comes naturally to them. It's a natural byproduct of who they are. Yeah, yeah, that it, that's who they are. But I'm not so sure they don't plan for it. I'm, I'm not that sure. Uh, again, I, who knows? Can we, you know, open them up and, and define definitively, uh, you know, find evidence that that's what they're doing? No. But that, uh, that's yeah. the problem uh, because. You know, as you say, when you encounter somebody who uh, kills a goose that lays a golden egg and then you begin to inquire of them why they did it, uh, they usually come up with all kinds of justifications and and, uh, they'll spout off, you know, philosophical falderall and, um, you know, it's it's just really weird because they will give you answers if you inquire, but... But it's not really, you know, it can't be the truth because it's not true. And, it, and, and they can see the evidence, if they were really evidence-based, that what they're doing is wrong and bad, and it's bad for them, it's bad for other people, it's bad for everybody. But, you know, they, it's, it's just really an incredible phenomenon. I mean, we've just witnessed it recently, and it's just an incredible phenomenon. I, I just, it's baffling. 
baffling. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the same way, uh, Laura keeps saying. Uh, you know, I don't understand. You know, the older you get, the, you, you find out the less you know. And uh, <laughs> add this to the things I don't know. Um, but apparently they do. I've seen it on a personal level. I've seen psychopaths do things that really ultimately hurt them as well. But then there's this sly little grin that kind of sneaks to the surface when they think nobody's watching. And so you know that, in fact, they did plan this, that this wasn't an accident, that, yes, they suffered or they are, you know, facing some sort of repercussions from it as well. But actually, there is some sort of sly delight in it. Well, and you can imagine at that point where uh, a psychopath, you know, would get his comeuppance in some way or other. And, uh, you know, a normal person would say, no, did you see what happened? Did you see, see what can happen to you? Uh, you know, I mean, I hope you've learned your lesson and there would be this little sly grin, uh-huh, I learned my lesson. And all the while, they're just planning to go and do it again. Yeah. But thinking that next time, I won't make that mistake. Uh, and it might not be black and white, this um, planning thing. In your book, you, you mention, uh, I think you're, you're quite right, psychopaths can plan short-term planning. Like, they will do this action to get this subsequent reward, short-term reward. But what they lack, seemingly, is a long-term planning. Well, I, actually, just to slightly correct you, as I remember it, what Stefan wrote was that you might get a situation where there is a kind of long-term plan. Like if, for example, George W. Bush, was he aiming for the presidency from, let's say, 20 years ago? He could well have been, right? Let's assume he was for a second. But what Stefan says is that their short-term greed normally sabotages their efforts to have a kind of a long-term plan. However, if you're, let's say, in a super-privileged position like a W, maybe in spite of all your mistakes, you still get there. Yeah. Yeah, with uh, George W. Jr. there, it might not even have been his plan. It might have been his dad's plan or his grandfather's plan. Who knows? Mm -hmm. might. I certainly think he's uh, a psychopath. I, I don't think you could get up in front of the, uh, what was it, the press uh, luncheon there and joke about the missing weapons of mass destruction. I mean, here are, you know, millions of people murdered and, and thousands mm -hmm. of American citizens coming home without their legs and then thousands more dead and all based on this lie and then he gets up there and he's being uh, he's making a big joke about it I know, that, I mean, that was a perfect example of what you describe in, in your in the first chapter of your book about uh, defense against the psychopath where uh, you know you describe them learning the kind of uh, social kind of mores or social uh, rules and regulations but but as, you know, at a certain point, they'll just totally miss out on, on what's appropriate and what's not. And you give the example of uh, a psychopath at a funeral, yeah. you know, commiserating and then yeah. afterwards hitting on the, the grieving widow uh, or something like that. And Bush, W. Bush doing that at that, at that um, I think it was the press, White House press dinner, yeah. Press dinner, yeah his mask where, slipped. Where he came up and yeah, he started laughing about it, you know. And uh, But the thing is, everybody laughed with him. Everybody else thought it was funny just because they're idiots, you know, or maybe they're yeah. psychopaths. And even Obama did something similar. He, similarly, he made the joke about the drones, mm. you know what I mean? 
and that just serves to kind of like you know distance everybody from uh, in the US. You know, they see this as a funny thing, and it has that insidious effect on ordinary people who aren't psychopaths, who then are encouraged because they see their authority figures laughing and making light of these horrible things, and they think, oh well, yeah, then it must be funny, you know. And so the kids start going around playing this knockout game because yeah. George George Bush, you know, thought thinks it was it's funny, funny to kill he, people. Yeah, thinks it's funny, and and Obama, it's just it's just. Uh, it's really a sick, sick, sick society, and and uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't see a good outcome. Well, speaking of, speaking of sick society, one of the uh, other aspects of of your book, Stefan, is um, or one of the things you talk about is in terms of. It's, it's, I mean, the book's called "The Art of Urban Survival," and you go into all sorts of things about how to survive, and but you also talk about. Uh, planning for and surviving various kind of catastrophes or cataclysms or whatever that might happen on a, on a society-wide basis. And uh, one of the things that you talk about in, in regards to that is a community survival plan of basically um, people getting together and uh, uh, forming these kind of communities that are, you say are much more uh, beneficial and uh, for, for all involved. Could you talk a little bit about your ideas on that? Sure, I'd love to. Um, first of all, let's let's make a, a couple of assumptions. We know now that you know psychopaths will tend to accumulate at the apex of every power pyramid. Um, it, it, you know, w- once you understand how they work, and you see that in a fair competition with a psychopath. Anybody who's honest and upright and decent is going to lose. There is no way around it. You are not going to win. So what is the logical conclusion? The logical conclusion would be that power structures will become dominated by psychopaths. And I think there's ample evidence of that now. Uh, The the governments of pretty much most Western and, and most governments in the world are run and controlled by psychopaths. Probably the heads of corporations, certainly the heads of uh, many of the major religions, um, dominated by psychopaths. And why wouldn't they be there? Because those are cushy jobs. You're an important person. You have lots of power. You can manipulate and influence tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. What, it's a psychopath's wet dream. Of course, they're going to be attracted to those positions. And of course, uh, with their ruthlessness and their ability to lie, and, and manipulate, they're going to succeed in achieving those positions. So now we find ourselves, those of us that I call normals, um, we are in a society where just about every aspect has some sort of a psychopathic agenda. Um, you know, from media to movies to music uh, to games like the knockout games. And, and uh, you know, it's all psychopathic. It is. It's anti-human. So... What can we do to protect ourselves against that? The most, one of the uh, tools I've come across is to basically resurrect what used to be called mutual aid or mutual benefit societies. For example, we see in the States now, they're cutting pensions. Um, Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, of course, is uh, the opposite of what it claims to be. It's going to be the Unaffordable Care Act. So they've now destroyed most middle-class and and working-class people's access to medicine. Um, As we've seen in such 
natural disasters as or natural disasters as Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Sandy, that the emergency response services of the government is falling apart, the infrastructure is falling apart. So we no longer can rely on the government. First of all, we understand that the government's in charge, is, is, is controlled by psychopaths, malevolent mentalities that are there, not for our interests whatsoever. And we will now have to uh, learn to rely more and more on ourselves and each other. Now, the funny thing is, when I began re researching this, I realized the first problem that we have is we're not organized. Um, I keep saying, where's our secret society of multi-billionaires trying to, you know, work for the good of humanity? It seems that all the power is arrayed against us on the battlefield. They have the secret societies, they have their think tanks, they have their governments, they have the corporations and the banks and the media, they have untold endless streams of money to further their agenda. And what do we have? What are we going to do to fight against them? We're all individuals working by ourselves. Um, you know, a couple, a handful there in France, working desperately to try and change things. Individuals like me from our, you know, uh, our uh, uh, bedroom office, you know, mm -hmm. trying to speak out to the world, trying to say, listen, you know, what we lack most of all is unity and organization. So I started to think of ways, how could we organize ourselves better so that instead of everybody just all by themselves divided and conquered um, how can we unite to to you know address this issue and one of the things that came across was the old uh, mutual benefit societies mutual aid societies and these were groups that have been around for thousands of years and the first time I came across this type of structure or this organization was when I lived in China and uh, they had sort of lending circles. And this was a group of people that would pool their money together, and then that money would be lent out as business loans to their own members in order for them to start small businesses. Um, you know, in the States and even here in Canada, it's, it's wildly, uh, it's well known that most of the convenience stores are run by Koreans. And I remembered some report back during the Rodney King riots about when they attacked the Greek convenience stores and, and the uh, African-Americans were complaining that how come the Greeks get, or not the Greeks, the Koreans get to buy up all the uh, uh, convenience stores. Well, because they belonged to a lending group. They had 20, 30 people, family members, friends, uh, school friends, that all pooled their money together so that they could buy that convenience store. They did not have to go to a bank because a bank wouldn't have lent them the money anyways. <clears throat> So how else would you do something like that? So I remember underseeing the, the wisdom of that, that, yeah, you know, if I want to start a small business, let's say I needed $50,000, I couldn't go to the bank and, and get that money. They wouldn't lend you money for that, not unless you had a house and you decided to take on a second mortgage. So how do you afford to start up a business like that? Well, the Chinese, the Koreans, um, the Japanese, they had instituted these organizations and that had been a part of their culture for thousands of years. This is nothing new. In the West, we had something like that previously. These friendship and benevolent societies where working class people would pay a monthly membership and it wasn't usually a lot of money, probably less than what most of us pay for car insurance right now. 
And for that small monthly membership, because of the uh, multiplication factor of having a group of people contribute, they were able to buy group insurance policies and uh, group health insurance policies. They had uh, emergency disaster uh, relief funds. They had unemployment insurance. So all the things that the big nanny state government has provided us since Roosevelt, you know, welfare and unemployment and and, uh, uh, Medicare and things like that. Previously, these were all provided by community groups, people that worked together and helped each other out during times of hardship or times of an uh, uh, emergency. So I thought this is what I wanted to try and, uh, and understand and find ways of doing this. And so the my next book that I will be coming out at the end of the month is called The Community Survival Plan. And it's basically just a blueprint. It includes, you know, a set of bylaws and a charter and, and, and a structure and a team structure and a plan of action that people can adopt so that they can get together, uh, sign a mutual agreement, because you have to have a common set of values and understandings. We can't just kind of all meet together at the coffee shop and say, oh, listen, you know, everybody lends me a hundred bucks, I'll invest in a business, or, you know, everybody, uh, uh, you know, give me a can of food and I'll give it back to you during an emergency. It, it doesn't work. You know, I've been a part of the prepper uh, community. I've been to lots of meetings with preppers. Everybody is always saying, well, you know, let's work together in case of an emergency. And I said, yeah, I agree. Uh, so if an emergency were to happen tomorrow, <clears throat> exactly what would we do? Who's going to meet who? Where are we going to go? How are exactly are we going to help each other? Well, this is where it all breaks down. We don't have a, a, a way of doing that. We don't know where to meet. We don't know how we're going to help each other. We don't know what responsibilities each of us are willing to assume during an emergency or during a a crisis. So the community survival plan is aimed at giving people those tools. This is how you would organize. This is how you run a meeting. These are the type of bylaws you may or may not want to adopt because the primary principles of these groups are that they are completely egalitarian and democratic, uh, democratic. There are no presidents. There's no elected officers. There is no hierarchy. There is only mutual cooperation and any decisions made by the group is a result of the majority of members voting on that decision. And I think by working together first as a way of preparing for an emergency or a disaster, but also the same structure that is presented in the book can be adapted. And again, um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the most important principles uh, or skills to have during an emergency, as it is in hand-to-hand combat, is to be able to adapt what you have to the changing circumstances. So this community survival plan is a plan that initially I'm establishing it as a way for communities to make some preparation that in case of a disaster or in case of a plague or in case the power goes out and, and you are stuck without food, water, electricity, uh, access to a bank machine, access to cash, um, and you're stuck that without those services for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, maybe even a year, that you have a group of people that can fulfill the functions that the government used to feel, fulfill before the disaster. So, And those functions would be like a social security net, provide food and water, provide basic medicine, first aid and treatment, 
uh, and provide some communications. You want to know what's going on. You want to be able to communicate between members of the group and other groups and also provide some security, uh, somebody that will, you know, watch the cars or watch the storage locker or, you know, protect people from being uh, robbed and attacked because they might have some more supplies than somebody else. <coughs> but... So while this is a really a, a really an important type of uh, service to provide community members, the same structure can then also be adapted and go further. So if you're unable to afford health insurance because of the Affordable Care Act, perhaps the same group that had united to work together to prepare for a disaster can also decide to incorporate into their bylaws a new bylaw that says, listen, we are going to buy a group insurance policy. You know, when you when you belong to a group insurance policy, your premiums are way down and your benefits tend to go up. So you could adapt that group to now buy health insurance. You could also adapt that group to be a purchasing power. For example, you know, I, I know 10 people, the friends of mine and, and, and family. Everybody goes to the grocery store and everybody buys their, their groceries every week. But what if we decided to buy our groceries together. Let's say we all spent 100 bucks a week on groceries. But now I have 10, 10 friends. Now I've got $1,000 to spend on groceries. I can go and buy those groceries wholesale. I can buy them in bulk. So instead of each individual spending, say, $5 to buy a pound of rice, they would together buy, uh, pay $20 to buy 100 pounds of rice. Mm-hmm. Your food costs would be reduced dramatically. And in a time like now, what we're going through where we know what's going to happen, and that is the government is going to try everything in their power to squeeze every last penny out of you. If you have 20 cents lying between the cushions on the couch, trust me, the government wants that 20 cents, and they are raising the taxes and the licenses and the fees, and it's going up with the with the, the police issuing tickets and, and it's coming at you from a hundred angles. So we are being financially squeezed. We are getting desperate. So does it make sense for each of us to continue going by ourselves to the store, paying premium dollar for our food goods, or does it make sense to pool our money together, buy on bulk, and uh, reduce our costs tremendously? So organizing... Yeah together into small groups. I'm, I'm suggesting groups of between five to maximum, let's say, 50 people, and combining your resources to provide those services as a buying block, as a uh, self-defense block, as an emergency preparedness group, and, uh, and all the other benefits. And actually, that's what the old benefits or the old uh, mutual benefit societies used to do. Yeah. That's a very appealing idea, this community idea. I have a question relating to it, though. <clears throat> Previously in the show, you mentioned uh, some family members of yours that were not uh, totally collinear, let's say it this way. You mentioned in your book as well that uh, one of the major threats in those dire times is, uh, is your neighbors. You mentioned somewhere else in your book that uh, groups can be infiltrated by agent provocators or police officer in the cover, and you mentioned as well the existence of psychopaths. So how do you ensure that your community is made of reliable culinary members? Well, in the plan, I, uh, I put in the uh, uh, su- suggestion 
that all members vote for new members to come into the group and that you start with one person. One person can form a group. Um, so let's say you decide you want to form a group and you approach, first of all, those people you trust, the people that you trust and that are on the same you know, wavelength as you are, that have the same values as you do. So maybe you find three other people that think like you, that agree with the, uh, the need to form some sort of a group and uh, uh, they understand the purpose of the group and they're willing to go along with it. So now there's four of you. Um, if you want to bring in new members, those initial four members vote on the fifth member. And that member has to be accepted based on the trust of that the existing four members would place in that fifth member. And then now you have five members if you decide to accept that person and you want to bring in a sixth member. Now those five people have to vote for the sixth, and so on and so on. And again, voting members in is based on whether or not the majority of the people feel that they can trust that other person. What and if that's you vote, also why. What if you vote somebody in that you feel that you can trust, and then you find out that they are destroying your group from within? You can then vote to expel that person. <coughs> again, it would be you know yeah. brought up at, it would be a motion to expel. You know, I'm, I'm using some of the terminology found in the old lodges and the old uh, community uh, uh, mutual aid societies. And at a, you would have a regular meeting, and, and the order of business for the meeting is to, first of all, discuss any major emergencies that may need to be brought up at the beginning of the meeting. But then the second of order of, of business would be to discuss any motions. So at any point, at any meeting, any member can bring forth a motion to expel, and they would be given a certain amount of time that is agreed upon by members of the group ahead of time. For example, you may set it into your uh, meeting protocols that anybody who wishes to set a motion is allowed 15, 20, half an hour to speak. So any member can bring a motion to expel a member they think is being destructive to the group and make their case for that. Then the person that is being uh, uh, accused of uh, uh, you know, being a disruption to the group and is being asked to leave, they now have you know, an equal amount of time to rebut the argument that the first person had brought up, then the rest of the members of the group can talk among themselves and through a vote decide on which argument they would uh, follow and whether they would you know, choose to expel the person or choose to issue a warning or well, choose not to expel well, them at all. Here's the problem. If you're dealing with a real psychopath, uh, they're going to be very compelling in their argumentation, and they're going to uh, sway everyone over to their side. You know that for a fact, don't you? Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, it's it, you know I it there's got to be a little bit more to this than just you know having a democratic meeting and voting. There has to be uh, something along the line of uh, of what Hare and Babiak were doing with their snakes and suits. You know where you start collecting information about the individual, you know, about everything they've done, every ob you know, every everyone's observations <clears throat> of their behavior, things they've said, things they've done, et cetera, et cetera. You need to you need to collect something up and and you know it it just it it just poses because we've dealt with this. See? Because yeah. it because yeah. the interesting thing is is that uh I followed a very similar, and we're going to come back to this in just a second, but I followed a similar line of thought because in Florida, what we had was we had uh, people from Pakistan who were buying up all the convenience stores. 
and they had uh, they had these these groups of families and friends, and everybody would get together. They'd pool their money. They would send you know somebody over to the U.S., give them the money. They would come over. They would buy the store. Then they would you know get it going, and then they would send for two or three other members of the family. They would all sleep in the back room of the store. I mean, they were saving every dime so they could bring more of their people over, right? And then right, they would buy yeah. another store, et cetera, et cetera. And I saw this back, you know, 12, 15 years ago, and I said, you know, that's really brilliant because, you know, these people are coming from a situation that is absolutely horrendous, and they are, by cooperation, by familial and friend uh, cooperation, they are making, you know, really good lives, and they work really hard. And, nobody, exactly. and you know, people around, you know, your standard American, I mean, all they do is whine and complain, whine and complain, right? right. So. So we have. I mean, when we came here, we kind of did that ourselves. We've got this house. We've got, what, 15 people, 14 people in it? 13. Uh, thir- wow. 13, I'm sorry. Well, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a really big house. It's got like 17 bedrooms in it, you know, So and we've got big, big, a studio and office space and so forth. And we decided that it was cheaper to do to rent this place as a group than it was to get a bunch of small houses, you know, and, and, it, and it was. It turned out to be cheaper. Plus, we also had our office space in it so we could work all the time because we're workaholics. Okay, so then we started learning about, you know, learning how to get along because these are some of the biggest issues is learning how to get along with people who have different standards of cleanliness or people, uh, you know, right. have have different OCD habits and some people want things cleaner than others. And, you know, so you have to make a lot of adjustments along that line. Uh, but then you also, every once in a while, we would vote somebody else in in the early days. And mm-hmm. they would come and, I, you know, we've had four, let's see, one, two, three. We've had four, uh, three were schizophrenic and one was a psychopath. Oh, goodness, yeah. Okay. And it takes, sometimes it takes a while for this to come out, you know, because, you you know, and and then you have to start taking observations. And, I mean, I was really, at one point with the psychopath, I was getting up early in the morning to go and look out the window and watch him take the dogs out in order to see what was going on because the dogs were acting weird. And then, you know, I caught him kicking the dogs. Right, right. You know, and then there were other things, and then finally, you know, there were lies and and so on and so forth. So, but it was it was one of these kinds that is just completely disruptive. Covert, and he could. This was this man was six foot four inches tall, and he could cry like a baby if you if you confronted him about anything. He, tears rolling down his cheeks. I mean, the the pity game that you just absolutely would not freaking believe. But you know, you so you see what I'm saying. I mean, we've kind of We've kind of gone gone through this crucible of you know learning a lot of these different things, and now we've got other communities starting up that are kind of under our nonprofit aegis, and yeah. you know we're we're really interested in what you're saying because it's 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 powerful stuff and it's 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 an idea that we think the time has come. I mean, it really has come, but we've had a little experience on this, and and we've found some. Some issues that we don't really know how to teach somebody how to deal with these things. That's our problem. Um, no, I sympathize. Uh, you know, there is no other alternative. There is, there is no solution. 
I, I've thought about this. We've got to try it. Yeah, you know, the fact that a psychopath could infiltrate a group and destroy that group is always going to be present. There yeah. is yeah. almost no way that you can 100% guarantee that that's not going to happen unless... And, and I'm a little bit concerned because when you say, well, then you have to gather a whole bunch of information about them and, and go back throughout their history and all that. On the other hand, you know, I want to kind of respect people's privacies, too. I don't really want to have a group where we're going to sniff you a new one in order for you to become a member. Because personally, I wouldn't join that group myself. Well, well we don't um, do and, that every, to begin with. That's not that's not something yeah. that starts because we try to, you know, Deal with, give the benefits out, like you say. You know, we trust, blah blah blah. Yeah. And the person tells you who, who they are, what they are. You've had some interaction with them for a period of time, and you grow to trust them, and so on and so forth. And that's how we've done it. And it's only yeah. afterwards, and it, and, yeah. and I want to be clear about this. It's only yeah. afterwards, when the when the problems start coming up, that we start gathering the observations, because you know, one person will say, you know, something is really weird. Um, you know, I so and so said such and such, but then I found out that that wasn't true. Uh, and then you, you say that, and then the other one says, "Yeah, the same thing happened to me." And da da da. And then you start, you know, putting this information together, and you get, you know, a, a picture because you know psychopaths operate in darkness, and they are enabled to operate because people do not share information because the powers that be, and particularly our religions, have said. You know, don't talk about other people. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Or, you know, least, med, least said, soon as mended, mm-hmm. uh, blah, blah, yeah. blah. So we've got all of these, you know, little cliche sayings that, um, you know, prevent us from sharing data. And this is something Sandra Brown talked about in her, in her book, uh, How to Spot a Dangerous Man, that women have been uh, labeled as gossips. Because they talk about relationships, and and yet anthropologists have shown that this talking about relationships and talking about what people do and sitting there and just, you know, sitting around the campfire or whatever and just talk, 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 talking until you know everything about everybody, and then, you know, it creates bonding, it it prevents psychopathic infiltration and so forth. So, so there's a lot of interesting things we've looked at about about it because we've had to deal with it. And it's been yeah. a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, you know, I've, I've gone over that myself. I've, I've, you know, investigated all types of, you know, organizational structures and, and, and so forth. And there is no there is no escape from it. There is no foolproof method. I, I mean, perhaps there would be a foolproof method if all the existing members were enlightened beings and, you know, incredibly shrewd and perceptive and even have, uh, you know, uh, 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 a sixth sense and intuitive sense, then, yeah, they could probably prevent a psychopath from infiltrating. But um, I don't see there that is happening. No, but, yeah, how is that going to happen? A group of enlightened people coming together? Yeah, I'd like to see that. Existing, <laughs> to begin with. Existing, exactly. How spread out are they throughout the population in the world? But thank God for the Internet that at least, you know, we, we can talk to like-minded people. I can talk to you folks in France and you get me. I can't go to my neighbors and talk to them, you know. But, uh, no, Laura, we're, we're stuck with it. You know, we have an impossible situation. 
you know, I've, I've tried with the community survival plan to try to factor in as many of the possibilities of, of a psychopath infiltrating and causing disruption. But the balance is between being able to have a structure that people can join fairly easily and cooperate uh, and be a part of and also not be so rigidly enclosed that only a few people could ever become members because, you know, they're, uh, they wouldn't uh, qualify um, to, to, to be accepted by the group. It's a balancing act. It's, I leave it up to the founders of whatever group to institute however rigorous membership requirement they want. And if people don't qualify to become part of that group, they're, of course, free to join another group or even free to start their own group. Um, so I don't think that's, you know, uh, being discriminatory against anyone. Everyone is, can start their own group if they can't get into a one whose uh, standards are that type. But it, I would leave it up to the individuals. And also the whole point of keeping the group small, psychopaths, have, I think, an easier time of it when there's more and more people because they can sort of hide and yeah. they can create factions and they, they, can turn, they can turn people against each other. It's a little bit harder for them to get away with that when your group is the size of a small tribe or extended family size. Yeah. And it, it's a lot faster to spot them then also when they're part of a smaller group. Like you said, you know, you you suspect something, the dogs are coming back and they're limping after a walk. Well, what's wrong with that? So now, because you're there and you're able to observe it, you're now able to follow the guy and see him kicking the dogs. If you weren't there with a bunch of other people, and they might not have been as acute at noticing the dog limping. Uh, they might not have gotten it into their mind to investigate it, or he might have been too far away for them to be bothered with it. So I think the key is keeping the group intimate, and also sharing a lot of group activities, a lot of dinners together and things oh, like yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We do that. We have, know, we have karaoke nights. We have dinners together. We work together. We, we have our, our own private space, you know, because like I said, it's a big house. So you can go an entire day without seeing anybody if that's what you want. Um, uh, one, yeah. one question, Stefan. Obviously, you yes. cannot get it both ways. You cannot create a community without taking the risk of integrating disruptive or psychopathic individuals. All right. Yeah. Maybe in order to minimize this threat, having some prerequisite as far as knowledge of psychopathy is concerned, would it, would it be the right thing to do, kind of a classes or making sure that all the members of your community know as much as possible about this threat? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I, I really think psychopathy should be the subject of uh, a study for everyone. Um, so... Would I love everybody to uh, study it and uh, have a you know understand the signs and the symptoms and be able to spot them a lot faster? Absolutely. And if a group would you know say one of their entrance requirements is to you know watch a video on psychopathy or, or psychopathy or uh, read uh, one of the books by Dr. Hare or even read the pamphlets and that would be a requisite for their acceptance into the group. Um, by all means, the founders could institute that into their bylaw and have a, you know, 
for example, uh, I would want, uh, you know, before uh, I would give out a black belt, uh, everybody had to have advanced uh, uh, first aid and CPR. I just made that up uh, because I think you should know that. I mean, I think if you spend, you know, 10 years of your life learning how to break elbows and learning how to break kneecaps, I think you should also know how to put those elbows and kneecaps back together again. I, you know, it's a balance. You have to balance the, the yin and the yang. So I will not give a black belt to anybody that doesn't also know first aid and CPR. Um, I mean, what are you doing? I mean, you cannot focus only on destruction without focusing on creativity. If you knock so them that, out, you've got to be able to revive them. Exactly. Uh, and in, in, certainly in the Chinese tradition, both of my uh, Kung Fu masters were, their primary occupation was as Chinese medical doctor. Um, my, my master in Hong Kong was a what they called a bone setter, which is a type of kind of a category of Chinese doctor. And uh, my kung fu teacher in uh, Taipei was a acupuncturist. And I was very inspired by that because I thought it made a lot of sense. I was also inspired by the old uh, barefoot doctor's uh, manual, you know, where they had uh, peasants trained in, in medicine, and uh, they would go along the villages. This is you know back in communist China. And they would provide first aid and basic healing techniques uh, um, uh, on, a, uh, on a village level. So I instituted that rule for my school. You want to be a black belt, get your CPR and your first aid. So if you're forming a community survival group, you could say, listen, you have to uh, pass a test on psychopathy. Why not? Put it That's in there. That's a good idea. If you're I like you know, um, you know how when you join a company, they often bring you through a training program or you're brought into the boardroom and you have to learn the OSHA standards and uh, safety protocols and what your benefits and everything are. The orientation program that they put on, usually with a video or a slideshow. Well, why don't we institute that as part of your community survival group? Here's your orientation program. This is what psychopaths are. This is how to recognize them. And also, this is you know, the basics of group dynamics and the importance of cooperating and working together and communicating. And these are the procedures by which issues are raised within our group and how they're dealt with. So make that part of your orientation program before you join the group. I think another thing uh, that would be important would be, uh, you know, what you mentioned earlier, uh, shared values, uh, like having, you know, kind of, standard moral understanding so that, you know, you don't have conflicts of that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, the uh, the old traditional mutual aid groups were all formed around, you know, commonly held values. So Protestants would have their own type of mutual aid society. Uh, African-Americans who benefited the most from uh, these mutual aid societies, especially, you know, since the Civil War, that you know provided them with education and job opportunities. Uh, well, of course, that was restricted to African Americans and, and, and former slaves. Um, you know, uh, Catholic groups would have uh, you know Catholic mutual aid societies. Atheist groups even had their own. I think the Odd Fellows was a, a group that would accept anybody from any denomination. So shared values, of course, yeah. So you you could have people that belong to the same you know hockey league coming together. Well, you know, they're all fans of hockey, you're all in the same middle class neighborhood in suburbia. Um, you have a lot of shared values, you know, go to the, the kids go to the same schools, uh, you go to the same churches. Well, you have built-in uh, uh, connection right there with those people. And uh, if they were to get together and form a community group, um, that would be fine, you know. Um, and then if, you know, Muslim immigrants to wanted to form their own group and 
restricted only to other Muslim immigrants, fine. What's wrong with that? You know, so you can form along your own ethnic and religious lines and even social economic lines. Uh, um, the unions started off in a similar way, you know, the textile workers union and and uh, steel workers union and things like that. Their common uh, unifying uh, characteristic was they all worked in that industry. So. Finding a group of people with your shared values, absolutely, makes, it makes sense to, uh, to start there first. And if you don't want to accept members from outside that community, that's your prerogative because I do not recommend uh, legalizing these groups. For example, I, I do not recommend you filing for a 501 status or was it 401 status, nonprofit charitable status. Yeah, 501c3, uh, that's what we've got. and it's Exactly. Uh, and it and it it works well. So um, I mean, you just you have you have to really get on the fast track, you know, learning about nonprofit law and you know tax law oh, and that a, sort of thing because yeah. you know you don't want to you don't want to mess up in that respect. But I think I think your your book is going to be really exciting, and I think oh. that uh, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So you will keep us posted. You can give us the first copy, won't you? <laughs> Yes, please. I'm going to do a book review. Please. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm going to send you copies as soon as it comes out. Uh, you, you'll get the first complimentary copies. Aw, that's sweet. Thank you, Stefan. Uh, oh, thank you. Stefan? No, because, I, you know, I admire what you're doing, 17 people in the house. I'd love to join you. I really would. Um, I've would lived you like in to come visit? Yeah. Oh, so much. You, you would? Know, I, I, I enjoy Europe so much. I loved France, especially the south. Uh, I was in Avion and... Uh, that was my favorite uh, area there. And, uh, well, all right, province. we'll arrange a visit. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If you're, ever, if you're planning the trip, you know, no problem. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah. Stefan, we're kind of reaching the top of the hour here, and I think we've kind of covered most sure. of what we wanted to cover. Uh, I just want to say thanks again for coming on and talking about your book uh, and your project. The book is called um, The Art of Urban Survival, and the first chapter that we've been talking about is uh, Defense Against the Psychopath very important information for everybody to understand and to and get Stephane it. And Stefan has head. another book coming out. What's the title going to be? It's going to be called The Community Survival Plan. Excellent. Sounds very important as well. In so the all the listeners, be looking for this book. Yes. Okay, Stefan, thanks again for, for, for being on, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Uh, I want to thank Yes. Is he still there? I'm going back. Damn. It's a challenge. It's challenging. Yes, I think we're back on. Uh, I think people can hear us again. But, yeah, for some reason, we just got cut off yet again. I think uh, we need to organize a boycott of Block Talk Radio. A demonstration. Absolutely. Or a takeover. Let's pull together and take a community over. purchase. Yeah. And fix the bugs. <laughs> Exactly. Okay, we are back anyway, and uh, we were reaching the yeah. end in any case. We were, yeah. We, we, Stefan, are you still there? No, Stefan's gone. We just got the booted us, booted Stefan. Modern technology and modern society. Yeah. Well, it's, it kind of fits with the, the topic of the show, really, you know. Yeah. yeah. Everything crumbling. Everything's going to hell. It kind of fits. The hell. Even Berkeley technology. Stefan, are you there by any chance? Uh, no. Oh, yes, uh, I am. Sorry. Okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Good. This is just this has uh, been a real doozy of a of a show technolo- technology wise. Sorry about that. Beginning and end. Of the, the show just booted us all off and just cut us off and cut cut you off anyway. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Well, it's no a, problem for my. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, listen, once again, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, do you guys uh, run this show as a podcast later? Yeah, it's archived yeah. automatically, so people can download it. It's on that on the Blog Talk Radio website. Just sort net on Blog Talk Radio, you can find it and download it. Oh, terrific! I'll I'll link to it and share it on my social media then. Okay, we'll probably get it up on YouTube as well. Yo, oh, okay, great. Yeah. So what's ended? I think. So, uh, thanks for having me on again. And and uh, if you uh, ever need me to come back on, uh, we offer some. You know, commentary on some subject or whatever in the future. Feel free to let me know. Yeah, we definitely will. Okay. Okay, Stefan, thanks. All right, guys. Have a good one. Thank I'm you. Going to Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye. Thank you. All right, folks, that's the end of uh, this week. We hope you enjoyed it, despite all of our technical difficulties. We hope we, we imparted some useful information. Uh, thanks to all our listeners, etc. And we'll be back next week with a show on a topic... <laughs> no. 